Well, again, good morning, everyone. Here at the beginning of the year, we are jumping into our next kind of series that's going to take us um, up until Easter, I think. And we're walking through Luke. So we won't touch on every bit of Luke, but we will touch on um, some of the highlights of the book. And I just wanted to start out by encouraging all of you um, to be reading along at home. We're not going to be able to cover everything. And it's a rich book that introduces us to the Jesus that we love and that has saved us. And so I just want to invite you to consider um, having your Bible out at home somewhere and reading a couple of chapters a week. It's not a lot, but it would help kind of fill in the gaps in the areas that we're not touching on here on Sunday mornings. So um, last week, Randy started us off by looking at Jesus testing in the wilderness. And so up to this point in the book of Luke, we've had the birth narrative. Um, then it jumps forward until Jesus is an adult and we get his baptism by John the Baptist. And then immediately he's sent out into the wilderness um, to be tempted for 40 days. And so that's kind of where we have been so far. And today we're going to pick up um, with the next story that Luke records. And so I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 4, verse 14. It should be on the screen. Um, you can read along or just listen. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, and this is Isaiah 61, which we heard for our call to worship. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So this is Jesus declaring right at the get-go his mission. This is Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry um, kind of putting a line in the sand and saying, this is what I am going to be about. This is why I am here. So this is an important passage for us to dig into and to understand because this really sets the course for Jesus' entire earthly ministry and then as a result should really set the course for his body on earth today, the church, so you and I. This is what Jesus was about. This is what we are invited to be about as well. But the fact is that what he reads here, it is Isaiah 61, but if you were to flip open and look at the two side by side, there are some differences. And so it's important that we also recognize what Jesus chooses to say and what he chooses not to emphasize here at the beginning. I think that we can learn something from both of those things. He also draws in a verse from Isaiah 58. So for the most part, he's, he's quoting from Isaiah 61, and yet he pulls in a little bit from 58. So why does he do that? And then what can we learn about what Jesus is going to be about. Now, as I was looking at this, um, 
I'm making a little bit of a leap here because I didn't actually read this in any of the commentaries, and so I may be creating my own thing. And so take this with a, with a grain of salt. Okay, hold it in the bowl and let the spirit blow over it. And if it strikes you as true, then, then keep it. Um, but there's a writing style that is known as a chiasm, which um, basically it's a way of using parallelism or repetition in writing in order to emphasize particular things. And so, Heather, if you want to put up, yeah, oh, that one. There we go. So as you look at what Jesus lays out here, he begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me too. And then he goes into the series of um, proclamations of what he has come for. And I noticed as I was looking at it that it seems to be that there's this parallel structure that the A and A, the first and the last, seem to be focused on proclaiming good news to the poor. So that's what he says at the top. At the very end, he talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that may not be readily apparent, but what he is talking about here, um, well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. What I wanted to say here is that in chiasm, often the most important thing is the center. So everything kind of builds towards the center and then builds away from the center. And so I just wanted to suggest that perhaps if Jesus was in fact using chiasm, the most important thing in his ministry may in fact be recovery of sight for the blind. I don't know. We'll dig into that a little bit more. Let me pray for us and then we're going to unpack all of this a little bit. Jesus, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for the beauty of the weather outside. Thank you for the beauty of the community here in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we listen to your words this morning and as we reflect together on the significance of what you said that you came to be about. Lord, give us ears to hear what it is that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Jesus declares that he has come to accomplish three different things if we go with this kind of parallelism that I've described. So the first one is he comes to proclaim good news for the poor. Second, freedom for prisoners, freedom for the oppressed. And then third, sight for the blind. Now, the, we can argue whether or not Jesus means these three different things literally or whether he's talking figuratively here. Did Jesus really come for the poor? Are we talking um, you know, physically poor, folks that are living under the viaduct? Or are we talking spiritually poor? When we talk about prisoners, are we talking about people who are actually imprisoned at the King County Jail downtown? Or are we talking about people who are dealing with spiritual oppression and who are in bondage to things in th of that sort? And when we talk about sight for the blind, do we mean is Jesus concerned about physical illness, physical blindness, or is he talking about something on a spiritual realm? And our focus as his believers is significantly different depending on how we answer these two questions. And I would say that in the history of the church and today, um, there are some of us who tend to err more towards the physical and there are others who err more towards the spiritual. And, and then we can kind of look askance at churches who seem to, seem to focus too much on meeting physical needs and social justice. And then on the contrast, there are churches who think that if we're not doing that, we're not living out Jesus' command. So what does Jesus mean when he quotes this passage from Isaiah? Well, the answer is both. 
right? When I was in seminary, something that I was continually faced with as we were looking at different passages of scripture, and my, my professors would often, you know, they would say, well, it could mean this, or it could mean this, and would really create this dichotomy, and would then point out over and over again that it's really a false dichotomy, that very often we are called to stand in the middle and to hold both of these in tension. Yes, we are to be about spiritual realities, and we are to be about physical realities. And what we'll see as we unpack these verses a little bit is that the meaning of them, if we look at the, how these words are used in other places of scripture, is that this is a very comprehensive picture that we get of what Jesus is about. That yes, he cares about our souls. Yes, he cares about our physical reality as well. So let's kind of go down through these a little bit. So this first one. Jesus came proclaiming good news for the poor and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So in Leviticus 25, there is something called the Jubilee year that is commanded. And many of you are familiar. This was a year that was supposed to happen every 50th year in which all debts were to be canceled. All slaves were to be freed. If land had been sold between tribes, between families, the land was to be returned to its original owner. So it was really a picture of, the, of a resetting. So whatever had happened in the interim, things were reset so that there was kind of an equal playing field and there was nothing that was going to get too out of whack economically or um, in that regard. So what Jesus pictures here is a physical reality. But it also had spiritual implications as well. Both the poor in spirit, but also the physically poor, those who are, had few resources without a roof over their heads, are being talked about as Jesus lays out um, that he has come to bring good news to the poor. So the second category, Jesus came to proclaim freedom, or he came to proclaim release for the prisoner. This means anyone in bondage, anyone experiencing oppression, and that's physical bondage, physical oppression. And, you know, of course we think about folks who are imprisoned, but as I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking about a book that I just read and, um, about realities in Sudan, um, back a few decades ago, but it was talking about this young girl who spent literally her entire day walking to get water for her family. She had to do one trip in the morning, because that was all that she could carry, come back, deliver the water, and then do another trip in the afternoon just for her family to have enough water to sustain themselves. This is today, continues to be a, a significant reality for many in the world. That is bondage in my mind, that, that water is so scarce that there are girls still today who spend their entire lives simply providing water for their families. I think about folks who live in the city here in Seattle and the bondage that some of us feel to our work and to having to work at a certain pace, um, a certain number of hours just to kind of make ends meet. And for some of us, there's joy in that. And for some of us, that might feel like bondage. Um, for some of us, we experience bondage in the form of anxiety or depression. And anxiety for me, that's, that's mine. Um, perhaps for you, it's parenting. We love our kids, but especially when they are young, 
you have this small creature who is with you 24-7 and that really limits what you're capable of doing. That can feel like a joy some days, and some days that feels like bondage. <laughs> um, so many different types of physical bondage, and Jesus says, I have come for that. Then there's also the internal bondage to fear or addiction or illness. And most of us at one point or another have experienced any number of those sorts of internal bondage. Now, Isaiah, who wrote the passage that Jesus quotes, he was prophesying about a liberation of Israel from Babylon, primarily from captivity in Babylon. But Jesus quotes the same passage, and he proclaims liberation from sin and from all of its consequences. So he takes this passage and he he kind of reframes it. It, it moves from being simply a prophetic passage to being a messianic passage. Because Jesus is actually going to do what Israel failed to do in the past. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He is the one that the prophets have pointed to. So the third thing that Jesus claims, proclaims, is that he has come to bring sight for the blind. And so I suggested at the beginning that if that chiastic structure is in fact present intentionally, that perhaps this is the most important thing that Jesus claims to be coming for, sight for the blind. But we need to remember that here again, these words work on two different levels. So we, we look throughout Jesus' ministry, and yes, he, there are situations where he gives blind or he gives sight to people who are physically blind. They can't see. Jesus lays hands on them, and then they can see. That is included clearly in this passage. Jesus cares about our physical well-being. He cares when we are ill, and he is a God that brings healing. But there is also at play here a second level of meaning, that he is the one who's going to bring light into the darkness. He's going to give us eyes to see what is going on in the spiritual realm. There's a story later in scripture in Luke um, where he interacts with Zacchaeus and where Zacchaeus's eyes are opened. Zacchaeus is a tax collector and he goes from not believing to believing. Jesus gives Zacchaeus sight. So both of those kinds of sight are, t- are intended in what Jesus is saying here. So I think it's important as we sit with passages like this and each one of us come with our own leanings and our own biases to step back and go, what did Jesus actually intend, right? Like my heart beats for social justice or my heart beats for the lost to to be saved. And then to look at this passage and go, yes, and yes, Jesus is about all of that. And this is good news. Well, at the end of reading the scroll, he rolls it up, he hands it back to the attendant, he sits down, and sitting is the posture that the teacher would then begin to teach from. So he sits down, and then he begins to teach, to kind of explain the meaning of this passage. And the first thing he says is, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this would have sent off fireworks in this little synagogue in Jesus' hometown for this hometown boy, the son of Joseph, to make a statement like that following this prophetic passage that would have been 
very familiar to all of them. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you were to go back and look at the passage, you would see that in almost every line there, it says me. All of these different things happen in Jesus. They don't happen independently. Jesus here is claiming that all of these things that Israel has been longing for, this freedom, this sight for the blind, all of this happens today in me. Well, clearly a response is required at this point. They've been longing, they've been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and now a man stands in front of them and makes the claim, I am he. These people sitting in this room simply cannot just hear this and walk out and go on about their day. A response is demanded at this point. They either accept that Jesus' claim is true or not. And if all of this is true, if Jesus' coming really does usher all of this in, then the people should be lining up for the goodness that Jesus is offering, right? And at the beginning, that seems to be what happens. The first response that we hear from the people is that they spoke well of him and they were amazed at what Jesus had spoken, right? But just moments later, two verses later, there is this dramatic turning of the tide. Just minutes later, the people rise up and they drive him out of the synagogue, out to the top of a hill with the intent of throwing him off a cliff. So something happens to turn the tide. And so I want us to look now at what happens immediately following this. So I'm going to read another few verses here, picking up in verse 22. This is right after he's made the proclamation. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physicians, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of the widows of Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now listen to this. So all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So clearly there is a tension that has just come to the surface in these verses. When Jesus refuses to fall in line with his hometown's expectations for him. Here he is sitting in his hometown surrounded by Jews who have been faithfully observing the law and awaiting this Messiah to come and save them. And as Joey so eloquently put as we were discussing this with our community group leaders this week, it's as if Jesus gives them all the finger at this point, right? The Jewish people are looking for a Jewish Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah for the Jews, 
for law-abiding, devout Jews. That's why they have been living such devout lives. But instead, Jesus comes preaching a message not of exclusivity, but of radical inclusion. He comes announcing a kingdom that has room for saints, but also for all the sinners. And he says, if you can't get on board with it, then I'm out of here. So Jesus, immediately after laying out his mission, refers to two moments of judgment in the history of Israel. Moments when God's blessing passes Israel over because of their faithlessness and instead moves on to people, foreigners, people who are not a part of the people of God, but to people who were receptive and who did have faith. It's as if Jesus is saying in this moment, remember those times? Well, this is another one of those times. And sure enough, in the blink of an eye, the people who have listened to him go from loving him to hating him, chasing him out of town, being angry enough with him to be willing to commit murder. And yet Jesus, unfazed, simply moves on. He walks through the crowd unhurt and goes on his way. Well, this scene in Jesus' life has something for the church today in it. It urges us to recognize the importance of carrying Jesus' benefits beyond the church, outside the walls of the church, to people who desperately need it in the world. Yes, Jesus comes for us, but he doesn't come just for us. His gifts that he promises in these verses, gifts of release, of freedom, of light, and new sight, these are gifts that Jesus shares lavishly in his earthly ministry and that he invites his church to share lavishly as well. I have shared with you some, at times a bit about my call into ministry, but it really began when I was um, a young adult in a large urban church in Colorado Springs. It was right across the street from a large park, which was where most of the homeless community used to hang out. And in time, I just began to feel the dissonance of walking into this kind of fortress and having this amazing worship experience and having all of these intentional, meaningful relationships and being very blessed and then walking out the door and walking past all of these folks who just desperately needed what I had just been soaking up and doing nothing to share it with them. And I think that that is all too common um, of an experience, uh, that often um, churches hold the goodness that we have been given as stewards to share, um, and we hold it for ourselves rather than giving that away. Um, there are dynamics within our classes often where I feel like um, there's this sense that, that our role as pastors is to be gatekeepers of the kingdom rather than our role as Christians to be greeters, welcomers into the kingdom. I'm sorry, our classes is the regional body that our church is a part of. That's probably not common language. So there's a warning for the church here. And that is at the moment that we become selfish, the moment that we hoard these gifts that we have been given, withhold them from others in need, the moment that we act as gatekeepers rather than greeters, keeping people out based on some set of criteria, that these are the moments when Jesus is going to pass us by. 
In those days, it was assumed that children would eventually become part of the family business. So if your father was a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter. If he was a fisherman or um, someone who worked with textiles, then that is just what you were going to be. Well, in the same way as children of God, we are called to be about the Father's business. And our Father is in the business of bringing light, of setting things free, of caring for the poor in the broadest possible sense of those words. So our membership in God's family is not a membership that puts us first in line for daddy's goodies. Instead, being his kids should give us absolute clarity that our mission in the world is pursuing good news for the poor, pursuing freedom for the prisoner, and sight for the blind in all of the meanings. Well, if you are like me, you hear that and you just feel the weight of that. And so the question, how do I know where to start? Because that, that is huge and I, you know, I am finite. Well, I think the first thing that it's critical to remember is that this is first and foremost Jesus' mission. And that Jesus is still actively about this mission in the world. When he rose into heaven after he was resurrected, that did not put an end to his ministry and his working in this world. The Holy Spirit is still actively at work and is about the work of accomplishing this mission still today. So we are not alone in stepping into this work. We have the Spirit with us. We are partnering with the Spirit in the work that the Spirit is doing in the work. The second thing I want to say I want to remind us of a mission statement that I think I've shared once or twice before and that Mark is going to unpack more at our congregational meeting, so come. We've been working to kind of give new language to what we are about here as a church. And the language that we are sitting with now is rooted in Christ for the flourishing of our neighbors. Rooted in Christ for the flourishing of our neighbors. So first of all, in order to be about Jesus' work, we need to be connected to Jesus ourselves. And so as we think about all of these things that we are called to, the first thing we need to ask is, am I rooting myself in Jesus? And how am I doing that? How am I developing intimacy with the one who's going to give me the strength to do this work? And then as we consider where to engage in our world, as someone rooted in Christ, we need to ask for God to guide us. And this passage that I read this morning began by saying that Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, was going about his work. Everything that we do needs to be in the power of the Spirit. And so we need to ask for God to give his Spirit and for his Spirit to direct us. Now that may be ambiguous, so... Some questions to ask. What concerns or issues just won't leave you? What things get you the most riled up when you see them in the world? Perhaps that is the spirit nudging you to engage in that direction. Another question is, where do I have the capacity or where do I have the interest to make the greatest impact? We all are finite. We all have too much going on. So where are the doors opening easiest for you to engage? Where can you get the biggest return on investment of your time? Those are questions that I ask. 
as I've been pondering the closure of the green bean and kind of the question of what we as a church are going to be about, you know, what is kind of our external focus corporately going to be, a few things that have come to my mind that I've been pondering are a recovery group. Could Sanctuary be a host for a recovery group so that this, the people that we are meeting at the Green Bean who are living on the streets, many of which who have some sort of addiction, could we continue our engagement with them in a different way through walking with them in their journey out of addiction? I don't know. Alpha is a Bible study that we've, um, Jen and Steve, hosted at least once here at Sanctuary that is intended for folks who are exploring the faith and are not yet believers. Is there a sense that God might be inviting some of us to offer an alpha group? I don't know. I have been feeling also that I want us as a community to be a community that is deep in scripture. And I think that that is hard uh, in the midst of a busy life. And so I have been thinking back to studies that I have done that give a framework for walking through kind of the whole of scripture in a set period of time. And I've been wondering, is it time to pull something like that out again and invite folks within the church or outside to come and simply read scripture together. I don't know. But if any of those things resonate with you, um, I would love to talk to you about it because those are the things that I've been sitting with and pondering. So we get off the rails when we think that we have to perfect our own relationship with Jesus, though, is one other thing that I want to say before we reach out that I have to kind of get my rooting in Christ totally on track before I then start living out my faith. And I want to say that, that I think that um, a better way to look at this potentially is as two parallel tracks, that I think that our rooting in Christ and our living for the flourishing of our neighbor are parallel tracks that we should have one wheel in both at any given time and that they should be feeding each other. So as we go deeper with Christ, he then pulls us deeper into our engagement with and care for his world. 